the Upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join Abbott historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Hello, my name is Troy Smith. I am an associate professor of history at Tennessee Tech in Cookville. And um, this is part of a, uh, a podcast that we have decided to call Mountain True, uh, in which I am going to discuss various, hopefully interesting things about local history in, in the Upper Cumberland. Um, today, I was um, prepared to talk about uh, a subject that many of you might be familiar with, you might have heard of, and that is the Upper Cumberland's notorious Confederate guerrilla during the Civil War, Champ Ferguson, um, alias Samuel Champion Ferguson, born in Clinton County, Kentucky, uh, in uh, Albany, Kentucky, just over the uh, state line, and closely associated uh, with the neighboring Tennessee town of Jamestown, which is where he first started attracting attention, but most closely associated with Sparta and White County. Uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, Ferguson was in a bit of a, uh, he was in a bit of a pickle. He has been described, he was described by newspapers at the time as being, well, the, uh, the modern, modern uh, parlance would probably be a good old boy, uh, except not always so, so good. He was known for being very rowdy, uh, sometimes contentious if you got on his wrong side. And some people had gotten on his wrong side. He'd wound up in a melee following a church picnic over the uh, um, accusations of theft of some livestock. And he wound up, well, he wound up stabbing the constable, which is not a good thing. Uh, even uh, under the best of circumstances. And then the constable died, which is also not a good thing. So when the uh, cannon were firing at Fort Sumter in April of 1861, Champ Ferguson was awaiting trial. Um, he had been, I think he had been released uh, on bail. I don't think he was sitting in jail, but he was awaiting trial. And... Turns, turns out that with a war looming, the local court system was not as, not as interested in, in pursuing the things that were on the docket as, as they were in getting things arranged, considering the fact Tennessee was about to secede and officially become, at least from their perspective, part of a different nation. And as it turned out, in Jamestown and in Albany, Kentucky, in fact, much of East Tennessee, there was a lot of pro-union sentiment. In fact, the majority of people were in favor of remaining in the Union. The farther west that you went toward uh, Middle Tennessee, the more pro-Confederate sentiment, sentiment there was. And in West Tennessee, it was overwhelmingly pro-Confederate. But in the east, where it was mountainous and there was no real cotton agriculture to speak of, there was not the need 
to identify closely with the plantation class and with the preservation of, of slavery. So a lot of folks in East Tennessee, very pro-union. Many of them had had grandfathers or great-grandfathers who had fought in the American Revolution to establish the United States of America. Champ himself, we don't really know what his initial feelings were, but we do know that his entire family was pro-union. The judge, though, who was going to be presiding over his case and the district attorney were both pro-Confederate. And they made him the uh, offer, essentially, of dropping the charges if he would enlist as a uh, come over to the Confederate side. And he agreed to do that. Later in life, he had said that um, said that this was sort of um, a matter of, of circumstance. But really, if you know anything about Champ Ferguson and just from the way I've described him, he had a very strong, rebellious streak to begin with. So you could imagine him also identifying with the sympathies of the rebels. So he made that agreement and raised up a company, a ragtag, motley, uh, sort of ad hoc company of uh, guerrilla scouts and cavalry. It's questioned whether or not he actually ever enlisted in the Confederate Army. He claimed that he had and that he was the captain of a company, but he never kept any records that worked against him later on. Anyway, um, there is a lot that can be said about Champ Ferguson, and it really couldn't be said within a time frame of uh, just a few minutes. So probably... What we're going to be doing on, on this podcast is this will be the first in a series of discussions about Champ Ferguson and his nefarious career. So I just wanted to introduce the subject right now and also to sort of point out that when it comes to Champ Ferguson, there's a fine line, it's a blurred line between fact and legend. And when you're dealing with Champ Ferguson, both sides of that are fascinating. Um, without any elaboration or uh, magnification or exaggeration whatsoever, just sticking with the facts, his story is a very compelling one. But over the years, it has sort of morphed into other forms and there are things about his life that are not necessarily true that have come to be regarded as true by people living in the upper Cumberland. I've spent a good deal of time with, with champ Ferguson, not, not literally, you know, in his, uh, in his presence, but thinking, thinking about his life and, and writing about champ Ferguson. I wrote a, a historical novel several years ago called Good Rebel Soil, the Champ Ferguson story. And I've written articles about him and his life in various journals and books. And, uh, well, you know, spending too much time in the mind of Champ Ferguson might not be, might not be the, you know, uh, well advised, uh, but, like I say, he was a fascinating, fascinating individual. And 
I wanted to talk a little bit about that those legends that I mentioned. But first, I should give you a brief outline. So the briefest of outlines about Champ is that over the course of the Civil War, as there were various different guerrilla bands, some pro-Union, some pro-Confederate, fighting back and forth against one another and sort of generally terrorizing the countryside, both of them. Eventually, by the, uh, the end of the war, Champ had attracted uh, in a big way the attention of the, uh, the Union Army and concerted efforts had been made to try to catch him. Finally, when the war ended, he surrendered, thinking that uh, he would be included in the general amnesty offered to anyone who surrendered, but that didn't count for him because he was not considered to be a, an official soldier, but rather as a, uh, as a guerrilla um, acting independently. So he was charged with a whole lot of murders, but they were only able to convict him for several. And he was executed. He was hanged in Nashville in October of 1865. That, theoretically, would be the the end of the story. But immediately upon his execution, stories had begun to circulate that he really wasn't dead at all. That the whole thing had been kind of an elaborate ruse on the part of the uh, the U.S. government to enable Champ Ferguson to escape execution and start a new life out west, or some stories had uh, had him with with compatriots who had stuffed the uh, filled the coffin with with a, a life sized doll, things like that. Very similar to the kind of stories that you would hear about later on about individuals like Jesse James and and Billy the Kid. Um, and Butch Cassidy, various other figures that attained sort of a legendary status that people didn't want to let go of or acknowledge that they had that they had died. So those legends started to to come to the fore, but there were already legends that had cemented themselves really in the uh, public consciousness about Champ Ferguson. Now, when I was when I was growing up. In Sparta, I was born in 1968, so we're talking about the 1970s. When I was growing up, um, Champ Ferguson was still a, a topic of conversation over a century after his death. Generally, the way that he was described by people living in White County back then was that he was sort of a, a martyr of the Confederacy, that he had been done wrong uh, after surrendering and then being being executed for doing nothing more than protecting his homeland. While, as you traveled farther east to the counties that had been pro-Union and that he had essentially helped to, to terrorize, he was regarded as a, as a brutal thug. Outside the Upper Cumberland, though, not too many people were aware of Champ Ferguson. That has been changing in recent years, about the last two decades, there have been several books either specifically about him or touching on his career. And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. It's kind of odd 
because in his lifetime he was pretty well known, not just in the Upper Cumberland, but well beyond. His trial was kind of a, uh, well, kind of a circus atmosphere. There were journalists from all around the country that were covering the daily proceedings and that covered his execution. There was, um, there was a Confederate general named Basil Duke. He was a brigadier general by the end of the war. He was the uh, brother-in-law of uh, General uh, Morgan, um, John Hunt Morgan. And uh, Ferguson had ridden with Morgan's cavalry at various points during the war. A couple of years after the war was over, Basil Duke wrote his uh, memoirs, 1867, in which he described the, uh, the war serving under General Morgan. And in those memoirs, he wrote a lot of stuff about Champ Ferguson. And this was a book that was pretty successful for its day. So a lot of people read these really um, sensational stories about Champ, some of which were true and some of which probably were not. Some of them were probably part of the legends already arising about him. Um, so pretty soon after the war, People were reading about Champ Ferguson around the country, but even during his lifetime, there were all these rumors and legends about why he was such a violent person and what it was about the uh, the Union side that made him take it so personal. And those things, I believe, echoed down through down through popular culture um, in various other forms that perhaps you might be familiar with, even if you had never heard of Champ Ferguson. So in a moment, uh, I will talk a little bit more about that. But uh, first, a brief message. This is Mountain True, and today we're discussing Champ Ferguson. I'm your host, Troy Smith, on the Henson Oakley Podcast Center. Providing your family's dental care and now featuring Zoom teeth whitening. Make your appointment today. You'll be on your way to a dazzling smile. Henson Oakley Family Dentistry, West Jackson Street in Cookville. Now, the show is called Mountain True. Uh, it is. Uh, it will put some pep in your step and it won't rot your teeth. So, so that's good. But even if it did, uh, you can make your way to uh, Henson Oakley Family Dentistry. Getting back now to the story of Champ Ferguson. I laid out for you the circumstances of Champ's conversion to the Confederate cause. But as I indicated, there are several stories that started to circulate that sought to explain not just his stand, but uh, the reason behind the extreme violence and even savagery of his, uh, of his defense of those philosophies. One story that uh, made its way uh, around and you still hear repeated sometimes today is that at the beginning of the war, Champ's little five-year-old son was, uh, was out on the front porch waving a Confederate flag as some Yankee soldiers were marching past and they shot him dead. 
other versions of this story have the little boy running out and getting caught in a crossfire in a fight between Union and Confederate forces. So that would be a, that would be a good motivation that would tick somebody off. The only problem with that story is that Champ Ferguson didn't have a son. Um, he had had a son that had died of natural causes as a child over a decade earlier. So at the beginning of the war, he had a daughter, and that was it. So that story is not true. But it does sound good uh, as, a, uh, as a defense for why someone would be so extraordinarily violent in their, their pursuit of revenge. Another revenge story that is even more deeply implanted now in the legend of Champ Ferguson is that while he was away from home, some Union soldiers came to his house and um, forced his wife and teenage daughter to make breakfast for them uh, and forced them to, to strip down, take off all their clothes and make breakfast and then whipped them uh, with the implication that there were other worse things that, that happened. And the story goes that when uh, Champ found out about that, he was furious and enraged. And that would then explain the ferocity with which he fought and the, the fact that he treated his enemies even when, even when he captured them, even when they surrendered, even when they were helpless. Uh, he treated them totally without remorse, giving no quarter. Um, and, of course, the story is that that's because of what had happened to his family. Another version of the story, there are several versions. One version has him uncertain about whether or not to fight for the Confederacy, so he goes off to think about it, and while he's gone, the Yankees come to his home and rape and murder his wife and children and burn down his house. And so he comes back and he finds finds his house burned to the ground and finds out what had happened. And so then that's the cause for his embarking on this career of bloody revenge. Now, there's no, there's no evidence that anything like this actually happened. When asked about it, uh, asked about the story while he was sitting in jail awaiting his uh, execution, uh, Ferguson said that uh, it had nothing like that had, had ever happened, though he did take advantage of the story, according to Basil Duke, during the war when he had uh, killed some, uh, some captives, that, some, some prisoners that he had taken that he had a personal grudge against. And when then Colonel Duke protested, uh, Ferguson had said, these are the people that outraged my wife and, and so forth. So... When you come right down to it, we don't know. Probably it didn't happen. The most likely thing is that this story was already circulating and Ferguson was sort of taking advantage of it with a wink and a nod to excuse his own, to excuse his own behavior. But when questioned about it officially, he denied it. Now, the one biography of Champ Ferguson that was available before the 21st century, which was... Uh, Book called Champ Ferguson by Thurman Sensing, published by Vanderbilt Press in 1940, I believe. The author of that, Sensing, who was a well-regarded academic, but also 
uh, an ardent Confederate apologist and a segregationist. Um, he argued that these outrages against Champ's family did happen and that the very fact he denied them proved they must have happened because it would have been so uh, humiliating for the family that he would have denied it, which that's kind of a circuitous uh, uh, and illogical argument to make. So most historians believe that there is, there's no basis to those stories, just as there's no basis to the story of the little boy being shot, which is more easily proven because there was no little boy. However, it does fit in with, that is the story, with the story that a lot of, a lot of Southerners were telling themselves more generally during the war and even more so after the war, when the war had been lost, uh, during the era when what is known as the lost cause ideology was being brought to the forefront in the public. And that, that theme is that the, uh, the men of the Confederacy had been fighting first and foremost to defend their homes and families, and more specifically to protect the women of the South. So with that as the sort of the reasoning that uh, some people used as to why they were going to war, if you had someone that was really effective on your side that killed a lot of people in somewhat gruesome ways sometimes, uh, bringing his life into that larger overall theme would just kind of make it fit more and make it seem more defensible. Now, in the years after the war and then in the years after Champ's death, that sort of, the, that sort of trope that, so far as I know, was first attached to Champ Ferguson, the trope of the vengeful confederate, uh, started to appear a lot in popular culture. Now, there were other uh, famous guerrillas who were attached to stories of vengeance, and uh, some of those were more easily rooted in, in fact, like, for example, in Missouri, Bloody Bill Anderson, and we'll be talking a little more about him. Bloody Bill Anderson, who was a cousin of the, uh, the James brothers and the younger brothers, and who rode with William Quantrill, uh, his, his sister and several other women who were relatives of Quantrill's guerrillas were arrested, uh, sort of used as leverage against the guerrillas, and the jail they were held in mysteriously collapsed and killed them all. Um, so there's a good vengeance story. But the part about the part about the Confederate coming home and finding his home burned and his wife raped and his children murdered is something that seems to have first been attached to, to Champ Ferguson and which has taken on sort of a, a life of its own. You started seeing those types of, of stories in historical novels in the uh, late 19th century and then on into the uh, 20th century there were some films that had similar themes, and there were some that had remarkably similar themes. There was a movie uh, made in 1958 called The Proud Rebel, 
that starred Alan Ladd, most famous as Shane, that's virtually identical, uh, the burning house and, and so forth. Going a little bit uh, closer to the, uh, the, the present, to the late 20th century, there was a movie that I bet a lot of you are familiar with called The Outlaw Josie Wales that uh, was uh, directed by and starred Clint Eastwood. It's, it's a classic Western and one of his most iconic roles. And uh, in that film, Josie Wales is a farmer in Missouri whose family, whose farm is attacked by Union guerrillas who proceed to kill his whole family and burn his house down, just like in the story about, about Champ Ferguson. And then Josie Wales goes on this. He becomes one of Quantrill's raiders and refuses to surrender at the end of the war and, and so forth. Since then, there have been repetitions of this theme that probably were more based on the success of that movie than on the uh, trope of, of Champ Ferguson, such as this is one not a lot of people saw. In 2007, there was a Western called Seraphim Falls that, uh, that starred Pierce Brosnan and Liam Neeson. Uh, and in this one, Liam Neeson was a former Confederate officer and Pierce Brosnan, a former Union officer. And uh, Brosnan's Union soldiers had set fire to Liam Neeson's house during the war and it burned to the ground with his wife and children inside. And so the movie is about Liam Neeson and his fellow guerrillas sort of tracking down everyone who was part of that Yankee, Yankee group to kill them. And Pierce Brosnan is, is the last one. Uh, there was a TV show that was on for, I think, six seasons on AMC called Hell on Wheels. Finally ended just a couple of years ago. It was a really good show. Uh, it was pretty uh, pretty accurate uh, in its portrayal of the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. But the central character in that show, Hell on Wheels, uh, Cullen Bohannon was the character's name, was a former Confederate guerrilla who at the end of the war had come home to find that his wife had been raped and children killed by Yankees who then burned his house down. So you can see, you know, this sort of repetition of this theme, even, even to the extent that um, in 2012 there was, a, there was a movie called John Carter based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs novels about John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Um, maybe, you, maybe you didn't see that. I don't think many people did. It's actually a better movie than people give it credit for. But in the old Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, John Carter was a former Confederate soldier something that I think was added. I don't think this was in the original novels, but in the movie, uh, John Carter comes home from the war to find that his wife had been raped and his children murdered and his house burned down. So again, as you can see, this uh, continuing repetition. Josie Wales is, is an interesting case that can actually be more, um, more closely aligned with the legend of, of Champ Ferguson. And this was done a few years ago in a biography of Champ Ferguson by Brian McKnight. Uh, the book was called Confederate Outlaw. 
there have been, like I said, several books that uh, either are directly about Champ or touch on him. Another one is Blood on the Cumberland by Thomas May. But Confederate Outlaw by Brian McKnight, I think, is by far the best one. And McKnight laid out the connection to Josie Wales. The Outlaw Josie Wales was based on a novel called Gone to Texas, which was written by Forrest Carter, who was also the author of a book called The Education of Little Tree that made a big splash when it came out in the 1970s and was considered a, a classic for many years. It was the story about the author's childhood as a Cherokee Indian and of the things that he learned from his Cherokee grandfather. Well, turns out uh, Forrest Carter was a pseudonym and the, the author's real name was Asa Carter. He was originally from, I believe, northern Alabama. And uh, he, had been, he had been a segregationist. Uh, he had been the speechwriter for Alabama Governor George Wallace. So if you're familiar with that, that incident in the early 1960s when the University of Alabama was being desegregated and the governor stood in the doorway and said, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Asa Carter wrote that that speech. And Asa Carter, it turns out, was essentially so racist and sort of radical in it that uh, he, he freaked out George Wallace, uh, who, who eventually fired him. Then he started, uh, started over, started a new life as a novelist. Writing Gone to Texas about uh, Josie Wales and also, as I mentioned, The Education of Little Tree, which was not presented as a novel, but as a memoir, which is interesting because Asa Carter was, uh, was not Cherokee. So anyhow, the point that Asa Carter wrote The Outlaw Josie Wales is important because being from northern Alabama, it's entirely possible that he was familiar with the stories and legends about the, uh, the, the Cumberland outlaw, as Brian McKnight called him, Champ Ferguson, and all the stories that were associated with him. And if you look at the novel, there is a lot more detail about the uh, Josie Wales character than is introduced in the movie. So at the beginning of the movie, you've got Clint Eastwood. He's a farmer in Missouri. If you read the novel, you will find out that Josie Wales had just recently moved to Missouri from the mountains of Tennessee. And frequently over the course of the, over the, course of the novel, the author, Carter, made reference to Josie Wales's Scots-Irish heritage and the uh, sort of the tradition of Scottish clans and honor and revenge that he held to. So with all that in mind and all the similarities to the legends of Champ, Champ Ferguson, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to think that he may have been at least a partial inspiration for the Josie Wales character. Now, probably 
Uh, what's what's more likely is that to create the fictional character of Josie Wales, Carter did sort of a mashup of Champ Ferguson and Missouri's gorilla Bloody Bill Anderson that I referenced earlier. Bloody Bill Anderson, after the death of his sister, sort of uh, got more and more hardcore. Uh, he he murdered a bunch of prisoners that he took, and he was known for scalping uh, his his Yankee uh, uh, prisoners after he killed them or his Yankee enemies, and he carried scalps around with him. So anyway, this probably uh, combined with the legend of, of Champ Ferguson helped to perpetuate that legend of the of the vengeful Confederate. So it's really, it's fascinating to, to think about the fact that Champ Ferguson, who at one point uh, during the war was absolutely infamous and notorious, could have been forgotten for the most part by the rest of the country outside of the Cumberland Plateau area. But um, still live on through the vestiges of that legend as they sort of trickled down through different parts of popular media. Well, I'm looking forward to talking more about Champ Ferguson with you at uh, um, our next opportunity to uh, come together. Uh, There's a a lot of detail about his infamous career that, uh, that we can go into and explore a little bit more closely, but I've sort of laid out the, the legend for you and the, the groundwork. So I look forward to talking with you more about that next time. You've been listening to Mountain True. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Henson Oakley Podcast Center. 